What is up, everybody? Adrian M. Gibson here. What you're about to hear is the audio version of a live author panel recorded at TBRCon 2023. TBRCon is an all-virtual sci-fi, fantasy, and horror convention that I directed and organized and was founded by David Walters of Fanfy Addict. And this year, we had the pleasure of hosting 30 author panels, which were absolutely amazing, and I highly recommend checking them out. But since so many of you listen to podcasts and prefer that over watching things on YouTube, I have published this live author panel here on the SFF Addicts podcast feed. I'll be releasing a new author panel every Friday until they run out. So until then, sit back and enjoy this week's TBRCon 2023 author panel. Enjoy. Welcome to the Neurodiversity Through Character panel. My name is ML Spencer. I'm author of Dragon Mage, and I'll be moderating this panel. With us today so far is Justin. Welcome, Justin T. Call and CM Kaplan and Ada Hoffman. And I think what we'll do is we'll go ahead and we'll get started just with introductions. So I'm going to eeny, meeny, miny, mo to Connor. Uh, yeah, my name is Connor M. Kaplan. Uh, I'm the author of uh, The Sword in the Street and um, more recently, The Fall is All There Is. Um, I was a semifinalist in SPF 07. Uh, I'm a quadruplet. I'm autistic. Uh, I have OCD and ADHD and a number of other acronyms. <laughs> um, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Connor. Um, Ada Hoffman. All right, my name is Ada. And um, I am autistic, which I'm very public about and open about, and I have some other things I'm not as public about as well. I am the author of the Outside Trilogy, uh, published by Angry Robot, which actually, uh, book three, The Infinite, um, just came out this week. It's hot off the presses, so that's there if you're interested in that. Um, as well as I have a few collections of shorter work. And um, what I've also been doing for the past uh, more than a decade now is that I have been running a review series called Autistic Book Party, in which I talk about um, autistic representation in science fiction and fantasy books, both through like the characters and through the authors who are writing the books, if they're open about it. So that's me. Wow, fantastic. And Justin? Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, Justin T. Call. I'm the author of the Silent God series, Master of Sorrows, Master Artificer. I just recently, I'm working Master of the Fall in the third book in the four book series, which will be a lot bigger. Um, but um, when it's all of the pieces of the series are done, but it'll be a lot bigger. But um, I just recently had the sil- the day the gods went silent, a uh, short story, more of a novelette that got published with uh, Grimdark Magazine. Um, I have whole barrel of ADHD and uh, a bit of OCD as well. Uh, I come from a lot of neurodivergent branches in my family, including all those things, but also like Tourette's and autism and other things. And I probably have autism too, but you know, it's a, it's a spectrum. So, so that's fun. Very good. 
And um, yeah, I'm I'm Emil Spencer. I'm autistic. I'm a parent of um, a child who is also, along with the, the salad of anacronyms. <laughs> so it's it's really 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 truly a pleasure to be here moderating this panel. Um, oh, and we're having somebody join us, Ada Palmer. Welcome. Hello. Well, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? If you're ready. If not, then we can come back to you. Let's come back to Anna. Okay. Well, I think to kick this off, um, what I would like to do first is just to kind of start out is to kind of form a, I guess, a group of neurodiversity. Um, and I just kind of want to like discuss the word, kind of define it against other words that are similar, such as neuroatypical, neurodivergent. So, so we have a working vocabulary. Um, so who would like to start that one off? Hmm. I nominate Ada Hoffman. <laughs> All right. So, um, Neurodiversity is a term that refers to a group of people or like anything involving a group of people, like the cast of a book or something, because um, a group can be diverse. A person can't be diverse. And that's why we have similar terms like neurodivergent, which indicates something, someone who's uh, different from the norm. Uh, but um, neurodiversity is the idea that all kinds of different minds um, and types of brains and ways of thinking are, um, you know, are worth celebrating and worth treating like people. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's an excellent definition. Um, Ada Palmer, are you able to uh, yes, hear me? Yes, my, my tech is fixed now. And I was about to add oh, uh, from our POV, also worth depicting in fiction. Uh, oh, yes, oh, of course, yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, depicting, which as I think is a link to the, the writing side of this, depicting not only a varieties of characters and varieties of minds, but as we think about science fiction and speculative fiction, varieties that exist now, varieties that have existed in the past, and new varieties that could exist in the future as people live in new and different circumstances, which will make new and different types of minds possible. Very good. And can you just um, go ahead and introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sorry to run late due to tech things. Hi, everyone. I'm Ada Palmer. I'm the author of the Terra Ignota series from Tor Books, and which has four volumes. And I'm also now working on a new series about Vikings and another new project about exoplanet terraforming, co-written with Joe Walton. And I'm also a historian, and I study the history of banned and forbidden ideas uh, and the censorship thereof. So I work on things that seem to have nothing to do with each other, but what they have to do with each other is that they were banned, such as homosexuality, witchcraft, demon summoning, belief in the existence of atoms and vacuum, uh, weird heresies, and uh, atheism, uh, all of which were policed by the same powers and regulated in the same ways. So that's my current stuff. Very good, that's an excellent introduction, thank you. Um, Connor, what would you like to add, if anything, to our discussion, um, just on the topic of definitions that we'll be working with today? I think um, neurodiversity is sort of a way of a sort of recontextualizing the idea of um, disability as um, less, th less, less than being 
different from um being less than and more just celebrating the the differences in in the sort of the way a brain can operate very good and justin do you have anything to add oh yeah i'll, I'll always have something to add most likely because i have adhd and so i can't not add something um i think that um oftentimes as connor was saying we approach neurodiversity well even the term neurodiversity doesn't approach it this way it, it does celebrate as something that is different and not a disorder but when you look at the things like me saying i have adhd it literally has the word disorder in it which presumes that there is something wrong but it's not necessarily wrong it's simply different and the chemicals or the way we process things how we process information receive information um respond and communicate to other people is not a wrong thing it's simply less common than what is normal thus neurodivergent neurotypical but but with it comes so many other cool things because oftentimes we focus on those things that are uh challenging or frustrating generally frustrating for neurotypicals but also for neurodivergence but we also oftentimes i shouldn't say we but other people who are not neurodivergent very often miss out on all of the wonderful things that make neurodivergent people in my opinion the best people the most interesting people the most celebrated people the most creative people and um if i if i have to choose between a neurodivergent and neurotypical I'm, i apologize to the neurotypicals but you're more lame than the neurodivergent <laughs> I will gravitate towards those who uh, who will talk at my speed and and think at my speed, and uh, celebrate those things that are not as common. So, yeah, that's more divergence for me. And it's great to put it into the writing too, because then you get to represent those characters um, in ways that make. I mean, they're they're not they're different, right? We want characters that have diversity in them. So it's, um, whether it's fully labeled like this is a clearly clear example of somebody who has autism or who has there's a spectrum and so you get to represent all of those facets because that is simply who we are that's simply who people are. so i want to actually add something to what justin said which is that a lot of this when we're talking um about celebrating uh differences this also ties in very strongly with the social model of disability, which is the idea that, you know, even when you call something a disorder and even when there are aspects of it that are challenging or frustrating, a lot of what makes it challenging or frustrating is not, you know, the way of being that we have in itself, but just as much what's challenging or frustrating about it is often the fact that we're in um, a society or a situation that is set up for the comfort of people who are not like us and is not set up with our needs in mind. And that's often what's most disabling about being neurodivergent. That's very true. So along these lines, I would like to go ahead and transition into how we all as authors try to portray our characters, our neurodivergent characters through these through these lenses with all of these facets and all these wonderful things that we're talking about and try to make them human. And I want to hear how each of you kind of does that. And so I would like to start off with Connor, please. Um, how, how we make them human? Well, not just human, but how we how we actually portray them. Obviously, they're neurodivergent. They're 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 different from a neurotypical oh, yeah. character. Okay. 
Yeah, I see what um, you're just well-rounded, fleshed out neurodivergent yeah. character. What is what is the art to it? I mean, there, and it is an art, I will say. Yeah. yeah. Um I think it varies depending on how you're going to do it, but um the first first person is usually a really great way for me to do it cuz you can really get in someone's head in first person in a way you it, it's that it's more difficult to access via third person um and it's also really cool exploring uh the interplays of uh culture and social expectations and uh the way a character responds to that sort of thing depending on what they've got going on um I'm trying to think there's um it's really interesting there's also um you can use it for world building of uh for how people process sensory data or information if someone has a special interest or something that's really uh tied into how a world works you can really use that to both establish a character and to build the greater context of the world that you're writing in that's really really awesome that's a good point um ida hoffman so there, I think there are a few parts to my answer for this. And one of them is that it's not always something that I go and like sit down at the drawing board. And I'm like, okay, how am I going to write a good autistic character? Um, so in the outside series, my protagonist um, is autistic. And one of the major villains is also autistic. And there's various neurodiverse uh, side characters. But those two like central autistic characters when I first started the first draft of the book, I didn't intend to have either of them be autistic. And what happened as I was writing is I looked at what the characters were doing. I looked at what they were experiencing. I looked at, you know, why they were experiencing it and how they were processing it. I'm like, oh, I'm using these characters to like write about my autistic experience. Actually, I just didn't realize at first that's what it was doing. Um, so I'm like, at that point, okay. So at that point, the question is not how do you design these characters to, you know, be autistic properly, but it's more like, how do I take what I'm doing and make it more legible to a reader who's not me and who maybe has a different experience um, from me? And how do I make sure that it's, you know, fleshed out and worked into the story appropriately? Like if they're autistic, do they have accommodations at work? You know, are, you know, am I remembering consistently what would be challenging for them or what would be, interesting to them. Um, another part of this is that I like to have uh, more than one neurodivergent character if I can. Um, because not only because that's kind of the definition of neurodiversity is having more than one kind of person, but also because it helps to kind of avoid the problem where you know, you have one character and they're a certain way and people are going like, oh, well, that's the autistic character and they're this way. So therefore, that's how autistic people are. And as you all know, on this panel, there are so many different kinds of us um, that that's simply not true. And especially if one character has like more stereotypical traits, like my protagonist in the story, she is a bit of a science genius, which is a stereotype. So I wanted to round that out with other people who are who are a bit different. Like there's a there's a character who's autistic who's like a more of a fighter type, and there's there's different. Um, and especially as the books go on and I introduce more characters, I started looking at um, people I knew and my friends who are also a very neurodiverse group, and being like, okay, well, you know, what other 
what things are interesting and striking to me about these people and how could I like portray something like this in a character or something like this and how would they all work together? And so I think, um, you know, the answer to this is going to be different for a neurotypical author who's maybe starting from scratch and having to do research into what autism is like in the first place. But when you're already in a position where you're in neurodivergent communities and where that's your experience yourself or the experience of a lot of people you know and love, then it becomes almost just almost the same as making any character. It's just a question of observing people and understanding them. Um, and then the only tricky part is explaining why they're doing things that way in ways that all readers can understand. Emma, I think you yeah. are muted. Sorry about that. You're gonna catch me doing that a lot. I'm really bad about that. <laughs> um, I really like the way you pointed out that having more than one character, you know, is really interesting because that's the whole definition of diversity. Uh, I've never really thought about it that way before, but you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, Ada Palmer, what's your take on this? Yeah, so I mean, agreeing, of course, with everything that's been said already, but three things that I I thought about as I was listening to Connor and Ada H. It's so exciting having another Ada at an event. It's never uh -huh. happened. Um, uh, one is the, uh, I often, when ideas or, of characters uh, to depict come to my mind, will try to sit down and think very carefully about the difference between uh, depictions of neurodiversity that are based on real observed you know medical realities of the present and our inherited palette of tropes for depicting mental diversity that we inherit from the past a lot of which is in our literary language you're all familiar with the 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 method of having a character who has flashbacks not in the some human beings really have flashbacks as a medical condition sense but in a this is a really easy way to make uh, the flashback give the story content that I want to have. Uh, like, oh, I'll just have a dream, and that's my backstory. Yeah. You know, so, so we're gonna we're gonna use use a form of traditional literary madness to jump around in time, or uh, melancholy, and especially poets' melancholy has a literary tradition going back four hundred years. And when you're writing a character with depression, you can sit down and think to yourself, okay. Am I using depression as we understand it medically? Am I using depression as we understand it literarily? How am I balancing these two things? Because there is a lot of very powerful accumulated literary uh, methods for depicting neurodiversity inherited from our past, which can be powerful, but can also be harmful because many of them are linked to different stereotypes or associations or, or bad information. And to sit down very consciously and evaluate, okay, in this scene or this thing that I'm doing with the character, if I'm drawing on literary stuff, which you, you know I do with some of mine, it's very powerful, to then ask yourself, am I balancing this in ways that do good, not harm to current movements? Am I also depicting the important elements to do something positive? So for example, you can depict your character who has plot convenient flashbacks, also be surrounded by friends who are helping them with self-care at a you know, support network of friends in a way that is a positive and realistic depiction of the way people handle mental illness in the present. And even though you're still drawing on the literary tropes, you're doing so in a way that increases 
realistic and positive understandings of this stuff instead of stylized and negative ones. So considering the can we hybridize literary traditional depictions with including positive messages uh, and medically accurate or medically corrective messages is a really useful one. Um, another thought I had while uh, talking about this expands beyond having more than one major character uh, with uh, who's neuroatypical is having signs of the presence of such people generally in life in your world, mm -hmm. running across someone briefly. And this goes for disability as well, which of course has overlap with neurodiversity in some of its depictions, but is not identical with it. Um, so to use an example I often use when talking about disability, if you have your characters walk up the ramp instead of walk up the stairs, you've signaled that this is a wheelchair accessible space and you're imagining a wheelchair presence in your world. And if it's a space station, this is even more exciting because traditionally most SF assumes that a lot of disability will, disability will be erased in futuristic contexts. And similarly, late on in one of my books, I have a you know, public service announcement about the ending of a data outage. And it includes, you know, and for deaf and non-speaking people do this, which reminds you of the existence of non-speaking autistic persons and deaf persons and people with different sensory needs. Just being there, even though there's no named character who needs this service, but it shows you that it's a world in which that presence exists. So just like having among your random characters who walk by one of them walking with a cane, it shows people that this is a population that's still with us in whatever setting you're imagining, which can be very empowering uh, in parallel to core characters showing it. Uh, and the third thought I had along those times is that one of my favorite things about SF depictions of neurodiversity is that we can imagine new ones there will be in the future. Uh, so in my series, there's a type of person called a set set who are raised from birth, connected to a whole lot of computer sensors that use all of their sensory input, including touch and temperature and taste and smell, to let them map enormous quantities of big data. Uh, so think of a graph, but instead of just using visuals, it's using all of your senses. But somebody who's grown up like that then doesn't interface as most people do with using non-computerized sensation because your knee itching doesn't, to you mean your knee is itching, it means this kind of data. And you're used to looking with all of your senses instead of looking with mostly your eyes as you're moving around. And so the world then has people who argue that this should be, a, is immoral and should be banned. Other people who are arguing that it's important and is part of neurodiversity, that there are you know, legal battles being fought over this identity on the fringes, just as there are legal battles being fought over other identities in the present. A way of thinking about that there will be future civil rights battles uh, in addition to our present civil rights battles and presenting a continuity in which we can be in, in solidarity even with allies that don't yet exist, uh, but could. And that that's one of the fun things science fiction specifically can bring to depictions of neurodiversity. I think it's wow, Justin. that's really, really cool. What's that? Justin's turn, I think. Oh, yeah, it's definitely Justin's turn. Most likely if we're doing a round robin, yeah. Um, I would add to that that, um, at least from my perspective, I don't typically consciously, um, I don't try to evoke neurodivergence as a, as a thing because it, 
simply is like it's the way i've lived my life it's the way i see people and i also understand that because it's a scope and it's a spectrum you can have people that are i mean in my opinion everyone is neurodivergent they just don't realize yet what they are divergent on and and because we have the language today to discuss and talk about those things it it puts a different perspective on it because i think most of the world has not had that um especially in the past especially in fantasy perhaps in science fiction um people would as as uh, ada palmer was saying um but then on the flip side like um like I think about, like for example, in my books, I have characters who, um, the way the magic systems work, we have people who are very empathic, who can sense other people's emotions, or people that can read people's minds, or people that um, are very sensitive to uh, the spirits or other things, um, people who are dead, people who are alive, people who are, uh, can heal themselves quickly. There's so many facets of magic that, in a way, neurodivergence is a version of that because we are more sensitive to information that other people may not be able to process. But also we can become overstimulated or understimulated, and largely it all comes down to receiving information, processing that information, and turning it into thoughts and feelings, and then communicating or responding to that in a way that other people consider to be normal. But what is normal? If, if you're in a magic system in, in a world where things are not the way that we are used to doing things, then suddenly, um, if you grow up, in, what if you grew up in a society where people were taught how to sense people's emotional auras? And you couldn't hide them. You couldn't stop them. You always were getting that feedback or, or people who have a time displacement. And so they're able to capture more of the information about what's going on. And they're moving their brain and their, bot, their, their brain is moving at a speed that is far faster than what's happening. So they're constantly forced to put themselves in a situation where they can't move as fast as their, as their brain is thinking, but they can receive and perceive all of the things that are going on. And for other people, that would be an overwhelming amount of data. But for them, they're frozen in that point where they they want to be stimulated because time is not moving fast enough for them. So all of these things I think about all the time in regards to magic, in regards to people, but also just archetypes in general. You, you see all these archetypes in stories, um, and those archetypes are often maybe unintentionally based on people who are neurodivergent sort a sort of archetype of people that you come across and i like all, all archetypes and tropes because they're fun to invert and show people who are exceptions to that or show the conflict that is inherent in that because because at, at least in my perspective i can be hyper aware and hyper focused on something and then completely oblivious to certain things <laughs> completely forget things and people and object permanence and be like oh yeah um, this person died that was important to me and I forgot about it because I'm focused on what is in front of me and that's the only thing that matters right now. And, um, and so those are things that I understand. And when I hear other people talk about how they live their lives, I think, well, that's, that's doesn't make any sense to me. But I, I know people do that. I know it's a common thing. So I try to represent the people I know in my life that are neurotypicals, neurodivergents, um, and I also try to expand and build on those because there's the whole, okay, what we know in terms of our world right now, we still don't really know a lot of what we're, we're learning. We don't really understand. Um, and it's hard to get it down to a science. You can't make your hyperfixations turn on or turn off. And the same thing with magic and, and um, communication, all these other things that people are going to have in, in fantasy novels and science fiction. Um, so we just have to again do what we do as science fiction fantasy authors where we speculate about 
what could come from a society that has these things, these problems, these tropes, these advantages, and what it will lead to that is different from what we experience now. And that's kind of how I approach neurodiversity in, in my stories, at least, because um, I just see neurodiversity as a fact of life, and it will always be that way in, in any story. So it's, it's best to find ways to share those stories that is diverse and forces that do not fall back on assumptions that we've just been taught and, and believe and, and don't actually have practical experience with because there's always an exception to any of these archetypes or stereotypes or divergence or typicals. There's always an exception. And those exceptions are, again, diverse and what make the stories most interesting. So I try to represent that as much as possible. You know, I'm finding it extremely empowering just listening to all of you. Um, you know, when I when I grew up, um, which was probably a lot before you did, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was not diagnosed at a younger age. It wasn't until I was an adult, actually, and I had no idea that my experience was something that could be shared with other people. And I certainly could not look in fiction and find people with you know, that shared a similar experience from me. And I just, I think that, well, for one thing, I feel overwhelmingly grateful um, just to even, you know, have found a tribe at this point. But beyond that, that I think it's so powerful to be able to to share that with others, too. And I think that that's something that's really, you know, phenomenal that in our age and time and we're able to reach out and share our experiences with others. And that's not something I think that before now has really been so accessible, at least in, you know, speculative fiction. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of where I'd like to go next is I would really like to hear what other novels, for instance, um, that you guys have read that you could recommend where you could actually point out and say, hey, there was a character that was done exceptionally well, a neurodivergent character that really spoke to me. Um, I would just kind of like to hear from each of you. We'll start with Connor. <laughs> I think um, the first time I ever came across someone like that was, um, I think I was like 18 and I was reading the Song of Achilles. Um, and it started with basically, I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name. Is it Patroclus, Patroclus, whatever, you, you know, the, the guy Achilles falls in love with that guy, uh, the narrator was, of the story. Scholars still argue about how ancient Greek is pronounced. So whatever oh, yeah. you say, you're wrong and it's fine. <laughs> you have permission to pronounce any of these names any way you want. So long as other people can understand you. All right. Um, so the narrator, I'll stick with that. The narrator of the book, uh, basically starts off right off the bat of like they, that, um, uh, his mother was like simple and then, uh, and then he inherited some of that. Uh, and so you sort of know right off the bat, uh, that he's, he's sort of like operating differently than, uh, a lot of the other people, uh, in the narrative. And that was sort of the first time I really came across that in a sort of sci-fi fantasy context, um uh and it was it just sort of um it took like a while to even process the the idea of like it, you, there could be people like that um in in like uh sff books um i think the t the point where i really started to see it in 
because uh, that that sort of bleeds more towards like uh, historical fiction and fantasy. It sort of toes that line. Uh, the first time I saw Neurodivergence in like a more sort of classic um, fantasy book was when I read I think Ellen Kushner's Swords Point, um, which again does not name what's does not provide a diagnosis for what's going on but there's alec who's like the mad duke and everything and just there are so many like small traits uh that he does or says throughout um the book and a lot of her a lot of villain kushner's riverside uh materials where um it's just like that was the first time i saw something where it's it's got like a classic sword and sorcery kind of vibe and it's like, oh my god, this guy's doing this exact thing that I that I sometimes do. Like he forgot where this thing is, and like he's or, or he didn't hear someone because there was a different sound somewhere else or something like that. And it's just like, oh my god! I and so it, that that one was the real sort of um, the the real like the, the first time I came across it and was like, I could do something like that. And uh, it's probably why my debut was a bit of a ripoff of uh of uh Swords Point. Um, Justin, what about you? What's yeah. a book that really, really kind of knocked it out of the park? I mean, really knocked it out of the park? I'd have to go with, um, The Slow, a slow, the slow Regard of Silent Things, um, by, uh, Patrick Rothfuss. Auri is one of the most fascinating characters in the, um, the Kingkiller Chronicles. And, um, for some people, they can't stand her, and I just... Everything she does is resonant to me. And um, I, I look at that and I say, there's trauma here. She's experienced trauma, but also um, she is wildly neurodivergent in so many ways that she perceives the world, um, that she, even even Elodin in the same series, like the way that he sees how magic works and the way there, everything has a name, and but the name can change depending on what the kind of thing it is. Um, it's like, it's, it's like someone speaking to my neurodivergence specifically and saying, I see you and I understand that you, you know, the name of things and other people may not see that, but I see that. And then, and because of that, these are people who don't fall into the norm, the way Elodin and Auri, Auri act, they I just, I mean, I just want to hug them. Like I love them so much that they're, they're so um, uniquely quirky, but in a way that is not like, I think obnoxious. It's in a way that is revealing truths. And the way that you see that the most is in a uh, slow regard for silent things. I think I'm saying that right. I might, I might be getting that wrong, but um, um, because instead of filtering the world through uh, Quoth's uh, gaze, and he's probably neurodivergent too, let's be honest. Um, you get, Auri's entire perspective and the things that are significant and important to her. And, and it's so completely different from what would be normal for anyone else that what is climactic or epic or important to her is not for any normal character in a normal fantasy novel. But that's kind of how it is sometimes when your values are different as a neurodiverse character or a neurodiverse person, um, there are things that other people value that we simply say, well, that's great for you, but that's not significant for me. That's not something I need or that I value as much. But this thing that nobody else cares about, 
this is important to me, and I wish other people appreciated it and understood it as well as I did. And getting to see that through Aori's eyes is really, um, I don't know, I, I think it's, it's one of the most marvelous ways to represent that because it is so singularly representative of her point of view and no one else's, and the story hangs on that. And and the the uh, the payoffs, the goals, the 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 motivations behind all of the actions that she takes, getting um, getting pieces of pottery to fit together just right, um, or or finding a key she lost, like so many things that are not critical to a plot, but they are critical to her and what she values. And and there's so much beauty in that and resonance that I just I love that I love that book. I'm really happy you mentioned that because I'll tell you what that would be my my book that really you know inspires me when I think about it and, and brings me to a happy place. Um, Ada Palmer, what about you? I think my yeah. I mean, as we've been talking, my historian hat has been rearing its head rather than my um, uh, more than my reader hat because one of the things for me that's very interesting about the trajectory of depictions of neurodiversity in SF is that. All the way from Golden Age, SF has centered what we would now describe as neurodiverse characters because the archetypical hero of a Golden Age SF story is a geeky, nerdy person who doesn't get along well with normal life and is, you know, sort of struggling to connect with others. But the language of neurodiversity, the term neurodiversity, didn't exist in that moment of our medical history. Uh, and as early SF, as Golden Age SF, you know, moves toward new wave SF, there's an enormous amount of depiction of what we, we can now in retrospect identify as engaging with neurodiversity, but not in the modern language that we use when we're trying to depict realistic elements. So if you think about the uh, depiction of the telepath who's gradually losing powers in dying inside, which is Silverberg and 1973, uh, if you think about um, Lewis Paget's short story, A Note, uh, All Mimsy Where the Borrow Groves, which depicts kids growing up, having found toys that are slightly from another dimension and grow up learning to think in non-Euclidean geometry. And we have a toddler and a six-year-old uh, who are perceiving dimensions that their parents aren't. Uh, this is a story that I don't remember the date of, but it's in a collection I have that's printed 1950. Uh, but is absolutely something that if we printed it now, we would say, yes, this should go in a neurodiversity collection. Uh, when we think of things like the work that Gene Wolfe was doing in the 80s with Soldier of the Mist that has an amnesiac narrator and Book of the New Sun, which has a hypermemory uh, narrator, there's enormous amounts of it that was done without engaging with neurodiversity as a community and neurodiversity as a representation group and neurodiversity as something where the center of the research is there so that a story like flowers for algernon stands out as being overtly about neurodiversity in a world where lots of things are covertly about neurodiversity i'm in the middle of rereading delaney's triton and one of the amazing things there is that we're watching people who've grown up in a to us very alien world engaging with a narrator who's quite dysfunctional from having grown up in a slightly different alien world and of course, he was writing that in response to Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which also has what we would definitely call a neuroatypical character who wrestles all the way through with his inability to connect with people normally. But that these things feel so different 
from the more recent works where you're like, oh, I recognize those particular behaviors, that particular response to sound, that particular uh, difficulty with written language versus spoken language, that particular uh, challenge with parsing time, which is one of the ones that I myself experience, where it's going out of its way to depict an experience that is shared by many, though obviously not all, uh, real living neurodiverse humans. Uh, and it makes the representations feel different, but it's also empowering and exciting to notice that they're central to SF all the way back to the codification of SF as a genre in the 20s. But they didn't have a name. Uh, and they didn't have a community that had come together as an advocacy group and a mutual support network to talk about how powerful they are and how much they have to do with each other. Uh, anyway, so, you know, long list there. But if you haven't read it, Mimsy Were the Boreal Groves by Lewis Paget. It's amazing to see it really zooming in on neurodiversity well before 1950 without calling it neurodiversity. Thank you. I'll definitely check that one out. I have not heard of that one. Um, Ada Hoffman. So I'm, I'm the one with the review log, so it would be strange if I didn't have several recommendations here. But I have three books I can think of that just like blew me away even more than the other ones that I recommend. Um, one of them is called Failure to Communicate by Kaya Sandrabi. So this is a story about a girl named Sandri who is um, in a future space opera world where they aren't very many autistic people, but she's autistic. And um, because she's had to spend so much of her life uh, working hard to like decode what neurotypical people are saying and what they mean and what they're going to do, she finds that skill useful to cross apply to figuring out what aliens are saying and what aliens are going to do. And so she works as a translator uh, for the spaceship crew. And um, I remember reading this book and being completely blown away because I had never been able to relate to a character as much as I related to Zandri because somehow, you know, she would go on these adventures, she would encounter these problems and she would react to these problems the way that I would, like she would get overwhelmed for a little minute the way I would, she would doubt herself the way I would, she would, I, I, I somehow hadn't ever seen this in a book before, despite having reviewed a lot of books with autistic refinements that I thought were good. I was like, yeah, an autistic person could be like that. Yeah, absolutely. But Zandri was different. And somehow just maybe a better fit for me, particularly as a reader, but it's also a very good book. Um, my second recommendation is a novella by River Solomon called uh, The Deep. And this one, I don't remember if it calls um, the character's neurotype anything in particular, because she's not a human, but she's one of these creatures that lives under the water. And she is kind of psychically carrying all of the trauma of her community. And she also has like all this, um, you know, her, her senses are different and everything's a bit different for her. And I remember reading this character and being like, Ooh, okay. Okay. I remember my, like, you know, traumatized teenage autistic person that I used to be when I was younger. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I recognize this too. Whew. Okay. Um, and, and that is also a very 
it won, I think it won the Nebula Award. Maybe it was only nominated for Nebula Award. I can never keep track of these things, but it deserved it either way. Um, and the very, the, the third book, only three, don't worry, um, is called The Unbalancing by R.B. Lundberg. And this one only came out in last year, 2022. Um, and it's the story of two characters who are very unlike each other, but who have to work together in order to avert this big magical disaster. Um, and one of the characters, Erigra, is autistic and the other one isn't. She has some other stuff going on. And um, this one, I just really enjoyed um, just the care that was taken to think about how these characters would work together and what difficulties they would run into and what misunderstandings they would have. And the care it takes to really validate both sets of the characters' needs. And especially, like, and it has some specific needs that Erigra has that I don't often see written about in science fiction or fantasy. Like, you know, terrible things happen and this disaster's coming and there's this little earthquake and Erigra is overwhelmed. And they're like, okay, I need to sit down for a minute. And the other character's like, are you crazy? We have to, you know, run and save these people. It's like, no, I have to sit down. And the narrative actually, like, respects that. And that's one of the things that, like, it's not always logistically possible, but where possible, the characters have to learn to respect that about Erigra. And it's just, I had never seen that before either. And I thought, um, so that's another book that is really cool. I think you're muted. You're muted again, yeah. <laughs> I did it again. Thank you for catching me. <laughs> I think that we really need to be compiling a list, a list of these afterward that we can kind of just put out there. Of course, it sounds like you've already kind of got a list of them, Ada Hoffman. Um, yes, well, well, I, I, my, my list actually doesn't have any of the things that the rest of you three recommended, so we, we, we really are going to have to pull our resources. <laughs> Yes, we will. <laughs> okay, so along with books that we think did a really, really good job, I also want to talk about for people who are at just, you know, taking their first journey into creating neurodiverse characters. Um, what are some things that, you know, they should, for instance, avoid? I, I know that a big problem for me when I come across it is seeing, you know, readers or writers that are trying to tackle the subject as neurodiversity as you know, a problem that a character should be trying to overcome. Um, and I know that that's the, you know, there's better ways to do it. And whenever I see that, that just kind of breaks my heart just a little bit. Um, but maybe you guys can kind of just shoot out some like general tropes to avoid, you know, pitfalls, watch out for, you know, for your new author kind of coming into this for the first time. And I'm just going to let you guys go instead of picking someone this time. I'll jump into that. I think, okay. um, then I, I also teach English um, at Southern Utah University in some creative writing classes. And um, we talk about this sometimes with characters, the hero's journey and various things. But ultimately, um, one of the things that characters need to do, we, we do need to change. So on the one hand, change is inevitable. We need to experience conflict that will force us to change. But at the same time, we should not um, invalidate or vilify the things that are special or unique about us that, um, that give us our own unique magic. And so I think um, in regards to telling stories, um, 
well, it's very much like neurodivergent people having to learn how to live in a neurotypical world. We have to find those tools to survive and not just survive, but excel and uh, thrive. But we don't want to let go of the things that make us amazing. And ultimately, I think if you're building characters in a, in a hero's journey, in a, in a fictional science fiction, fantasy, whatever it is, you need to have characters who acknowledge flaws that can be considered disorders by neurotypicals because we should be seeking for ways to improve and enhance and magnify everything that we are and everything that we have and not simply using it as a scapegoat for saying, all right, I'm this way and that's that. But at the same time, once you evolve and change and learn to grow, and it doesn't necessarily have to be something specific to neurodiversity or something considered disorder, um, but once you get to the point where you've made those changes, you still have not succeeded as a hero or a protagonist unless you are also synthesizing the things you've learned and the person you've become with the person you were, because those things are still part of you. And it's not until you find a way to bring those two things together that you really achieve that, that higher level of a character, um, the character arc really completing itself because you're accepting the things that are good and bad, but also showing what you can change and have the power to change. And I think that as neurodivergent people, we sometimes fall into the, um, the pattern of, I can't do these things that other people can do. Um, and sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. And, and really, it's, I don't think that's relevant. I think what's relevant is we seek to become better versions of ourselves. And that doesn't mean we have to change in, in, in letting go of the things that are part of who we are and how we process things. But it does mean that we need to um, embrace the things about us that are good and build upon those things. And once we learn how to do that, I think that we, we, um, we self-actualize, our characters self-actualize. That's how I approach neurodiversity in fiction. That's what I would suggest people do and not to fall into the, the big old bear trap of you know, making this be a problem for the person. It should be a strength. I think it is a strength. This is a kind of area. Yeah, this is the kind of area where it's really tricky, at least for me, to figure out how to answer. Because even like the stuff that would seem like a no-brainer of "don't do this," I think there's a spin you can put on it that would make it a very sensitive. Even like the the idea of curing it. Um, There are a lot. There are some like uh, neurodiverse people who who struggle with that kind of self-hate and and would want that and like i think that's something that might be that's you, you want to have the ability the room to tell that kind of story if if it's uh done in a, in a manner that's sensitive to those experiences um even the, the and i don't want to you don't want to say don't rely on stereotypes because like they're they're a lot like um any stereotype you can think of is something someone out there probably has um, and while you shouldn't be treating it like a checklist, I I I'm hesitant. I would be hesitant to discourage to to go like, oh, if you're writing an autistic character, don't make them really obsessed with numbers and really logical and structured. Because like I'm really logical and structured, I'd see myself there. I don't want to discourage that. Um, and I think the only suge- or the biggest suggestion I would even have would be um, treat it like your uh, the any the kind of research you would do for anything that is unfamiliar to you like if you're writing a book that's set in london it would help to actually like look up what what's there what the culture there is like um or any other any culture that's unfamiliar with you you're going to want to brush up and, or maybe visit that place or something like that 
um, to try and get as familiar as possible with that location if you really want to sell that you know what you're talking about. And it's the same thing here, where it's like, if you're writing something that's unfamiliar with you, you have to really know what these people are like and understand this community and the interplay and the ways that sometimes the various needs of these people can be even in conflict with each other. Um, and I think, the, yeah, the best way to go about it is just to sort of... Um, treat it like anything else you don't know about it and research it like uh any other aspect of uh that you don't know about that would you would want to make convincing thank you it is so I will, <laughs> sorry <laughs> so i will tell you my least favorite story trope regarding neurodiversity and i see this all the time is when there's a story where the main character is autistic. Sorry, no, I said that wrong. The main character is neurotypical and they have this autistic, like younger sibling or someone else who is just like, they're obliged to take them on the adventure for some reason. And the entire characterization of their relationship is about how, oh, this autistic person's so annoying and it's so difficult to deal with them. And I'm such a saint for dealing with them. And I just, I, I want to throw all those books across the room. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, a, a number of different thoughts. Uh, books with neurotypical characters and in a broader sense, also books with disabled characters tend to either end with death, cure, or abled friends slash other abled characters help the person get over there and overcome and triumph over a thing. And these are generally all bad narratives because they tend to center the abled character as being the only one with agency. Uh, and you know, I, th I think it's typified by what you see in journalism as well. I know last year at one point there was a headline, high school gives a diploma to mom who supported uh, autistic son all the way through school, not autistic boy graduates from school, which, you know, he it, is decentered by that headline. It's her doing the helping overcome that that is the center. Uh, and to to have the person have agency, even if it's they do some stuff that's unrelated to their neuroatypicalness. In addition to being neuroatypical, they also drive the getaway car. As if it's a perfectly normal thing to do, right? Because so often the character will be so defined by this, that this is their characteristic, uh, that they won't actually do anything in the narrative that isn't directly related to the, uh, the atypicalness. And that just makes the person not feel normalized and like a normal part of life. It makes the person feel like a problem and special and on the edge. There's a great nonfiction book. Again, this is on the disability side, but overlaps with what we've inherited to think about by Lois Keith called Take Up Thy Bed and Walk, which is a study of depictions of disability and uh, medical diversity in classic children's literature, especially girls literature. And, you know, the stuff we grow up on from the Secret Garden era, there is one example of a book where there's a, per a girl who you know, gets disabled or otherwise and doesn't die. There is one. Uh, and in that one, it's she was naughty and she's punished forever by God, right? There are no examples of it just being a, and you live with it and sometimes it gets in the way of stuff and you have a great life and you still get to drive the getaway car 
types of narratives. We don't have enough of those. Uh, so if you're thinking about how can I make my story not just have a cool neurotypical character, but contribute to making depictions of neuroatypicalness better in a let's make progress way, a big one is to have them do things that are unrelated to that uh, and to have the condition be there and affect things and occasionally be a big problem and occasionally be a help and occasionally not matter very much. Uh, but to be present as opposed to being either the obstacle that must be overcome or the defining characteristic of that person so they have no other characteristics. Um, and zooming in with that, in that, if you do want to have a character make progress with the condition, the progress can take the form of getting into a circumstance where the people around them understand it better and they have a better support network. Uh, finally, getting help in making their house have the special adjustments and, and inclusive tech that they need. Uh, finding a medication that helps get a aspect of the condition that they don't like more under control, while the other aspects of the condition that they consider part of them and core continue to prosper and be a part of them. Because a condition can have a lot of aspects. And if it makes you process sensory data differently in a way you're comfortable with, but also makes you sad all the time in the way that you're not, you can get a treatment for the sad while celebrating the diverse pr processing of, of, um, of sensory data. And we don't have enough depiction of that, of you know, managing, balancing, deciding what I like, deciding what I don't like, deciding how much I want to treat, and treatment as an ongoing process. So that if you really want to have change in the person's condition over time, it can be a change in how they're managing it, what they have, what they do, what their friends are. And victories aren't cure. Victories are having more power over your life and your condition and how they intersect with each other. Uh, so think about a path toward control instead of a path toward cure as something to celebrate and depict. So I, I agree with that a lot, but I also just want to add like for emphasis that when you read about, when you read a story about a neurotypical character, you know, sure, they grow and change. They don't grow and change by turning into a different neurotype. You know, they, they grow and change by learning to believe in themselves or learning to treat people better or learning this or learning that. And it is completely fine. And I would even encourage people in a lot of cases to write about non-neurotypical people who change in those ways. We're capable of them too, because we are people. It doesn't even have to be about necessarily the condition we have at all. Yep. Our arc can also be about becoming the best there is at making ramen uh, yes. or whatever it is, you know, the, the, the question can be anything. Now, I, I did note that Justin wrote um, Instagram and TikTok also have lots of these influencers that talk very candidly and humorously about these topics to the point that their conversations educate both neurotypicals and neurodivergence. Um, Justin, did you could you recommend a couple? Because I really want to go running right now to Instagram and TikTok to find these influencers. Um, yeah, I probably can. Um, uh, although so many people probably can too. Um, I was just thinking of Eleni Arquiro, who is my Greek friend who's messaging me right now on WhatsApp is telling me, giving me pointers about some of the stuff. Um, she often sends me some some of these things that she finds. But once you get the people in your stream, it's like TikTok's like, oh, or, or Instagram, oh, you want to see more of that. And suddenly you're entirely populated with things on neurodivergence and ADHD. But um, 
think one of my favorites is Connor DeWolf. Um, if you're familiar with him, I can write the uh, well, I can write the name here. I don't know that I can put it in the other chat, but you can post it somewhere else. But um, that's his name, and then his Instagram handle. This is one of my favorites because he frequently um, talks to himself as other characters. So he's he has like the neurotypical version of himself, and then the ADHD version, or the OCD version, or the autistic <laughs> version. And they'll be talking to each other in the room, and so the camera shots the way they are, and he has, usually changes his his clothes when he's doing it. And um, the insights that he brings to those things have frequently helped me understand myself better, which is why I, I often think of this, because a lot of these people are posting things. I saw one the other day, again, I think Elaine was the one who shared it with me, saying about some of the superpowers that we have as having uh, being neurodivergent or having ADHD or even just having trauma in your lives and things that have forced you to change your behaviors. Um, because sometimes our anxiety, sometimes sometimes the things that we do are a result of being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world or having trauma from experiencing things that are not a comfortable environment for you. And so we've had to learn to adapt. And those adaptations can seem quirky. They're also frequently advantageous for us. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they can be obstacles. They can press writing books quickly, for example. I spent 15 years writing my first book because of my OCD and my ADHD. Um, but also because of those things, I'm hypersensitive about including a vast amount of world building detail in my books. And I can't not do that. And I refuse to do it any other way because that's what is satisfying to me. So again, I think, um, all of these things, when it comes to neurodivergence, whether it's the authors or the characters, I always see them as, as benefits, but they come with challenges. There's always a trade-off. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'm, gosh, I'm getting so many great ideas from all of you. I just, um, <laughs> I'm going to have to revisit this and just completely like listen to it all over again, because you guys are changing probably the entire way that I construct my characters from now on, which is fantastic. And oh my gosh. Um, I mean, when I'm thinking like how I construct my characters, I guess, the place that I've always gone to is, you know, just myself, you know, how would I react to this situation? And, but, you know, you guys have made such a wonderful point, you know, th there's such a range of neurodiversity out there in the world. Um, and if I were just to construct all my characters from my own personal experience, you know, that would create, you know, not, not a lot of diversity in my own universe. So I guess my question is, where does one go to really, really um, just kind of frame a character? Um, where, where do you do that research? Do you go to books? Do you go to Instagram? Do you go talk to friends? I mean, probably what are some of the best places that you could recommend authors to go to really do some research to create really well-rounded, holistic characters? I would say for authors who, sorry, <laughs> I would say for authors who already not neurotypical, then one of the best things you can do is just go on your social media platform of choice, go on the one that already works for you and look for other neurodivergent people to follow and just see what they're talking about. And especially find neurodivergent people to follow who Yes, they're neurodivergent, and so are you, but they're also different from you. 
do in some way. Maybe they have some other form of neurodivergence. Maybe, I mean, I noticed this is a very white panel. We need more representation of neurodivergent uh, people of color. We need um, different, different genders. We need all kinds of different things. And just having these people in your social media, a feed of choice, seeing what they're talking about, um, seeing what issues are like grabbing them in the moment or what's going on in their lives, that kind of thing can be just very illuminating. And also look for books that are written by um, autistic organizations, um, the Autistic Women and Non-Thrainer Network and the Autistic um, Self-Advocacy Network. They've both put out some just some books of like general education that even if you are neurotypical already yourself, you might not know if you've only been exposed to like the medical model and like, here's a doctor saying what's wrong with you. You know, you might not even know some of this stuff that's become common knowledge in the community. So that's where I would say. Thank you. Anybody else want to jump in there? I'm tempted to say therapy. <laughs> that's mostly a joke answer, but honestly, like that's how I, I think a lot of people even figure out. Like, I feel like usually people, I don't, I don't, I might stereotype a little bit, but usually if someone is like uh, exploring neurodiversity in fiction, um, at least in my experience, people I know who who have started doing that are usually doing it as a type of self exploration because they don't know what they've got going on, and usually, usually, like, um, you can usually really figure if you can figure out how your own sort of brain is working and everything, and the ver the various ways you work and don't work. I think it makes it a lot easier to um put different spins on it like how what kind of a person would i be if uh i if i if i was like two percent different or this factor of my life had changed um and it can that can really help create um like spin things out spin things out from there and create completely different kinds of characters not to say you should only have like self-inserts or something like that but um it like figuring out just how how a brain can work and just sort of um provide a decent sort of jumping off point. It doesn't need to be therapy specifically, but just the the ability to figure that out, I think is invaluable. That's a very interesting point. Two thoughts I had from that. One is, you know, expanding on Ada's uh, recommendation of social media. Often one of the most informative sub spheres within that can be the comments about a work of fiction or a film that depicts neuroatypicalness that are made by neuroatypical people who will talk in their reviews or in their you know tweets about it about ways that it didn't seem right to them and ways that it did seem right to them stereotypes that they thought that were bad that were perpetuated moments when they thought it was good about a stereotype which are great ways to know sort of where the community is at in terms of what people are calling for more of and what people are calling for less of so that you can enter that conversation and say, okay, I could be a constructive contributor to this by depicting this thing that people are saying they really want, or, ooh, I was gonna do that thing, which everyone is saying they don't like. I see why don't, they don't like it. And I also see how I can change my story and make it better if instead of that, I do a slightly different thing, which inevitably will in fact make your story better. Uh, that's one of the fun things about when you change away from a stereotype is that usually what you substitute for it is just gonna make a much better story. Um, but the other thing goes back uh, to the actual original framing of the question of you don't want to base everything on yourself, but especially when we're in the world of science fiction, 
one thing you can do is know a couple of ways that you are neuro neuroatypical. You know, I process time unusually and say, okay, you know, this is speculative fiction. What, what if I imagine someone for whom that particular characteristic is a hundred times more, more potent? What does that do? Uh, what if it's a thousand times more potent? What if there is a technology or an alien substance or something that, that changes whether it's times a hundred or times a thousand? And then you can look at different aspect of yourself. You know, I, I parse music unusually for most people. What if that is multiplied by 10 or by a thousand? So you can often actually make especially since you're semi-inventing them, many different, very interesting, invented neuroatypicalnesses out of magnifying your own. And one of the great things about that is then you're speaking from your own authentic experience and you're magnifying them out of something that is real and that you know and that you know you're treating sensitively because you're from within it, uh, which can be very rich and a little safer than trying to depict something with which you don't have familiarity for which you have to do even more work. Now you want to do the work both ways because the fact that you have a condition doesn't mean you can't be bad about the way you talk about or depict the condition. Uh, we all learn from each other about ways to understand and talk about us ourselves even better. Um, but I forget if it was Delaney or Gene Wolfe who said, I've never seen the deck of a ship awash with blood but I've cut my finger in the kitchen and I've watched what it looks like when it drips. <laughs> and I can magnify that. Uh, and in the same way, you've never been at an alien planet where your cognition is working at a different thing so that time is oscillating from being at, a, at 10, 100 times to 10 times faster than normal. But you may have had experiences of processing time differently from others. And just like your blood dripping from your finger in the kitchen, you can amplify that. And that's one of the arenas where the fact that it's fantasy NSF gives us a lot of leeway to, to go in deep and create something really powerful. Thank you. Thank you. That's wow. <laughs> just talking to this panel is like really, I don't know, actualizing. Um, Okay, um, I'm thinking I'm kind of wrapping up the end of what I had kind of prepared for today. Um, but before I actually get to like the actual wrap up wrap up, I really just wanted to just put it out there to you guys. If there is any particular thing that you want to talk about, or you want to bring up some something that's really important to you, this is your moment. I'm curious, I'm um, curious whether, well, not whether, but we all have characters, most likely, who are neurodivergent in our stories, but um, I've already pointed out that there are characters that I suspect are neurodivergent or neuroatypical, and um, oftentimes I don't, I don't know and I won't know until I get farther along in their character arc and I can kind of discover those things, because that's how it was for me, that's, that's organic for me, I was adult diagnosed. And I just thought I was a quirky person. And then it wasn't until later in life that I realized, oh, I'm not as quirky as I thought. This is actually a very common thing for people that are neurodivergent in this specific pattern because they all are quirky the same way I am, which both makes you feel less special, but also you have a community of people that understand and empathize and sympathize. And I think when we're creating characters, they are on a journey and a path where they don't know potentially how different they are or divergent they are from how other people live their lives whether it's because they're living in a cultural setting where what is normal is not normal for us vice versa etc etc but having said that as a large long caveat 
are there any characters specifically where you said, in your own works, speaking of the panel, where you said, this character definitely is neurodivergent? And maybe you can even name what kind of neurodivergence, but you say, this character definitely is. Like, I have a character like that in my book. A, cu- a couple characters where I've suspected, but one, specifically Kenton, he is um, self-isolating, and he is um, uh, sort of autistic in many ways. And sorry, there's somebody in the other room. But um, that character is uh, kind of a foil to my main character, who is divergent in other ways, but Kenton is ostracized, he suffers a lot of trauma from that, and yet he still has to learn how to cope and socialize and, and, and articulate and communicate with people in ways that are either non-threatening or non-other, um, uh, non um, I guess you could say. And, and I, I'm curious what everybody else has, if they have at least one character in their work that they would point to and say, yes, this person's neurodivergent. I mean, I already said earlier in the panel, kind of, but the protagonist and one of the major villains in the Outside Trilogy are autistic, and it says that directly in the text. Like I said, it it took me a while to, like, well, during the writing process to figure that out about them, but by the time I had revised and published the book, it's very clear. And there are some other characters who are explicitly, definitely neurodivergent in my my short stories and elsewhere and as more minor characters in the series. So that's me. I uh, only have two books out so far, but each of them have like at least one character who's named as like uh, autistic. I think I named it in the first in the first book. I can't actually remember. It's been a while since I read it, uh, but it's mentioned the the first one at least mentions that one character has at least some kind of neurodiversity. And uh, in the falls, all there is, which came out last November, the most recent thing I published, um, it's explicitly stated that the main character um, is autistic, um, and that was the that was the one that I think I alluded to this earlier. I did it in first person, and that really allowed me to explore um, neurodiversity more in depth. Because this is this the narrator is a guy with like he feels everything very intensely all of the time, um, and then so he needs a lot of pages to just sort of process everything. And um, one of the things that I got that I that was really fun to sort of explore with a book like that was that. Um, it takes place over a very short period of time, um, and he never gets a chance to really rest. So he's just constantly like fighting off the the possibility of having a meltdown, which he knows will be used against him because it's sort of like a court uh, setting, um, like royal court, not like law. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like so it's the po- the threat of having some kind of meltdown or overwhelm. Is sort of constantly there because he because through the whole throughout the whole book he's not necessarily given many chances to really rest or recover from anything. So that was a cool way I, I was able to use uh, neurodiversity to allow it to actually affect the plot in ways that would also build the character. So I already mentioned the people who are raised within computer interfaces and and uh, there are several of them and they they are engaged within a variety of ways. Uh, there's also uh, a major political leader, uh, the Masonic Emperor, who ha- has PTSD, uh, which we see not very visibly because he's very good at performing strength. But when we see him in more intimate situations, we see it uh, manifesting. There are several other figures that are shaped by different kinds of trauma. Um, there is a character called Kato Weeksbooth, who is both autistic and um uh depressive although we engage with the depression more directly 
in the text, um, also asexual, uh, with trauma related to that. Uh, and then the car the narrator, Mycroft Kenner, is a is an onion of peeling back layers of uh, of of mind strangeness. Uh, who very early on in the text says to the reader, "My great merit as an historian is that I am known to be insane." Uh, but we continue to discover new ways in which this narrator is far from uh, neurotypical all the way to the very end uh, as we peel back layer upon layer upon layer of a very complicated ent entity. <laughs> uh, and then there's another character, J.E.D.D. Mason, that in a very science fictional direction engages with uh, communications difficulties and has many characteristics we associate with autism, although it's a science fictional cause uh, that I'm not going to discuss overtly with those who have read the series know what I'm talking about. Uh, but the ability that our planet has to engage with and communicate with that individual benefits from our history of studying uh, cognition. And there's also an entire political group dedicated to promoting mental diversity uh, that, that is one of the seven large political groups of the world that has a complicated taxonomic way of, of categorizing people and believes that the widest variety of minds is the most fruitful path for humanity. And then there's a lot of strife over whether they're right or whether they're wrong or whether their definitions are too narrow. So lots of it in the politics as well as in the people. Okay. Um, well, with my book, um, well, that one, uh, Renmore Saga, the main character has PTSD and he's also depressive. Um, with uh, Dragon Mage, the other one, um, the main character is on the autism spectrum. Um, but it's never actually like named, you know, but I think that most readers would be able to identify that. Okay, what I would want to do at this time is just give you guys each a chance to kind of like plug your work. Um, this is your opportunity to sell your work to, you know, potential readers. And so I just want you guys to kind of go a little nuts. Um, let's start with you, Ada Palmer. Sure. I mean, I think many of we just talked about a lot of the good elements of our work, uh, especially to anyone who tuned into this particular panel, who will therefore be discussed, uh, excited by the the things we just looked at. Uh, so, you know, Terra Ignota, I just described a lot of what it's in. It has politics, it has metaphysics, it has flying cars. Uh, what, what more could you want? Uh, it has questions of whether or not there is contact with aliens. It's a lot of fun. It also has miracles. Uh, separately, however, switching my different hat, uh, I have a blog, exurbe.com, E-X-U-R-B-E.com, on which I will recommend a couple of recent-ish essays. One of them on, because this is with my historian hat, COVID and the Black Death and what the Black Death tells us about what COVID is doing to us, which is, of course, a mental health question because we're living in a world mental health epidemic as well as everything else. Uh, and talking about instances in the past where, yes, people were also having trauma during the Black Death. No, they didn't all sit down to write a novel. No, Newton didn't come up with physics uh, on his own during uh, uh, quarantining from the plague. Actually, he went to the countryside, did some speculation about it, but didn't have access to his library, did the math wrong, thought he was wrong, and put it in a drawer for 10 years until a friend found it and pointed out the error, and he was, in fact, right. Uh, so, no, people aren't productive during trauma. Uh, it's okay, relax. 
Uh, so some of you might find that blog post cheering with its historical detail. Um, and I also, uh, for those interested in the intersection between mental health, uh, neural diversity and education, I was on my university's committee this year for adapting and last year for adapting teaching for COVID and developing COVID specific um, st healthy work habits and self-care guidelines, uh, which are also in a blog post on there, which uh, people may find interesting to look at in terms of how the progressive efforts to get better understanding of neurodiversity and mental health as a normal thing to talk about are being implemented as opposed to just being discussed as a goal. Uh, so beyond the science fiction, which I hope people will read and enjoy, you may also enjoy some of that nonfiction discussion. And of course, I have an essay about my disability history and the power of talking about disability, which is on Strange Horizons. I think if you Google Ada Palmer disability power, you'll find it. Thank you. I will definitely do that. Um, Connor. Um, the latest book I have is uh, The Fall is All There Is. It's got autism rep, a bisexual main character who's constantly very horny. Uh, it's got cyborg horses, uh, a tr train made of sinew and ox scales and bison fur. And there's a bunch of weird shit. There, people live in the skeletons of giant prehistoric animals. There are ghosts uh, that you can breathe in and get infected by. There's a lot of weird shit. It's like, it's, I think Clayton Snyder described it as uh, Rogers Lasney's Nine Princes in Amber crossed with uh, the new weird genre. That sounds amazing. Thank you. I will definitely need to check that out. Ada Hoffman. All right, so I have already waved um, my book at you, but I will wave it again. And I will say I discussed the autism and the other neurodiversity representation in the outside trilogy already, but I think I haven't talked about like what kinds of books they are apart from that. So they are cosmic horror flavored space opera. There are artificially intelligent gods that rule the galaxy. There are cyborg angels. Um, and there it's also a very queer series. The main character is a lesbian and there's a bunch of other um, versions of queer characters elsewhere um, in the series. Um, so definitely, um, if that is your thing, the Outside Trilogy, Out from Angry Robot, book one is The Outside, book two is The Fallen, and book three that I just waved at you is just came out this week is The Infinite. Um, if you want to read my autistic book review series, that is called Autistic Book Party, and you can find it at my website, adahoffman.com. Uh, or if you want to read, uh, like, my just blog or essays or nonfiction on a wider variety of topics, there is also my Substack, um, adahoffman.substack.com. It is called Everything is True, and it will, the free version will give you all the updates on what I'm writing next and where I'm appearing and all that kind of thing that you want from an IFO newsletter. And if you want to hear me write even more things, then there's also a paid version. So that's me. That's where you can find me. Thank you. Thank you. And Justin. Yeah, uh, I think I mentioned already that um, I wrote Master of Sorrows and Master Artificer. And those are the first two books in the Silent God series. Um, currently uh, finishing up uh, Master of the Fallen. 
people keep asking about when that's going to come out. It should have come out um, by like last year, should have come out, and then it was going to come out in April. And um, because of many things that are related to my own personal neurodivergence and personal life, that the book was delayed and it's still delayed, but um, it's almost done, um, which I can show. So I can show the, um, I'm going to pull that up here from my phone since I don't have uh, all the things. Um, I've got, or, here we go. Um, here is, okay, stop trying to, okay. there we go. Um, so that's Master of Sorrows and Master Artificer. So you see big shiny birds on the front. Those are probably my books. Um, and then um, the book that I'm drafting right now, Master of the Fallen. Um, this is the cover for that one. And then um, the short story that was recently released by Grimdark Magazine, uh, The Day the Gods Went Silent, uh, that was released in December. And I believe I have a picture. Yeah, here we go. Here's me holding that book. It's got a whole bunch of other cool authors in it. Um, but the novelette that I have in there, it, it's a prequel. It takes place a thousand years before the main events in my main series. But it sheds a lot of light on those things in the main series. Um, and as far as what the series deals with, it's dark epic fantasy. I compare myself oftentimes to Brandon Sanderson, but say darker and grittier. It's far less prolific. Um, but I will put, um, with much arrogance, my world building and magic systems on par with Brandon because he's invested a lot of time and energy into those. And I've probably invested a lot, even more time and energy into those because of my OCD and ADHD. And it's something I'm passionate about, just like linguistics and, and other things that are occurring right now. So that's that's me in a nutshell. Very cool. Well, I want to thank all of you. This has been really a very worthwhile, incredibly um, mind-opening panel for me. And I think that anybody who tunes in here is really going to get a lot out of it. Just speaking with you guys has been, you know, just a great experience for me. And I am very, very grateful to all of you because each of you have given me more wonderful things to think about and consider with my own writing. So thank you very much. Thanks for hosting us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Great getting to know everyone. <laughs>